good to see you again. Good morning. Thank you. You're still in uh, New York City, right? I am, yeah. In fact, it uh, looks like a New York City building right behind your window there. There is one, yeah. <laughs> How'd you do through COVID? Everything going good? It was good. I mean, I, I mostly just stayed here. Uh, my, my girlfriend and I sort of hibernated together. Uh, it was, uh, in a lot of ways, kind of nice. A lot yeah. of quality time. You know, I'm obviously very lucky. I'm in a situation, you know, I could afford to take the time off um, of work. A lot of people, I'm sure, have it is much different situation than mine. Um, but yeah. uh, for me, I'm not alone, which I think would have been really the, the hard thing. Uh, if I had been on my own during this time, that would have been different. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. You have a birthday coming up. You still look yeah. forward to birthdays? <laughs> Well, I mean, to me that, uh, you gotta remember my birthday is in August. And so for most of the past 30 years, I've just been at work. Right. Right. So I, I, I've been, there's only, I mean, I can remember in the last, you know, 30 years of my life, I can remember a couple birthday parties because largely it's just been a gig or a day off. Right. So 10,000 people are celebrating with you. They're just, <laughs> they're just out there and you're up on the stage. They're celebrating. So, I'm working. You know? You're working. They're celebrating. Um, so we can see you, Adam. And I think one big question everybody's going to want to know is who are you and what have you done with Adam Duritz? I mean, no more dreads, no more beard. This is a whole different look for you. Well, I, uh, I shaved the dreads off. I guess it's been it's been two years now, almost two years, maybe more. Not as new to you as it is to us. No, but uh, but I, I get it. Uh, it's still kind of new to me. Uh, although now I, it's weird to see myself with dreads. Um, I find it very strange. Uh, but it, they were like the best thing for me. It was the first time in my life I ever felt like me. You know, I really had. You know, I'm dissociative, so. I have trouble connecting with the world and life anyways. And I had a really disturbing for me, the experience of looking in a mirror for most of my life was very strange and off putting. Uh, and I didn't know that I had a dis dissociative disorder during that, you know, at all. Um, so, but it had always been a very weird thing. And I remember very clearly looking in the mirror at one point with the dreadlocks and realizing, Oh, you know what? This is like, that looks like me this is the first time in my life. I really feel like that's me, you know? And, uh, I can't tell you what an important experience that is for someone in my situation, like to feel for the first time in your life, like, ah, comfortable about that to look and see yourself as opposed to the disorienting sensation of not seeing yourself. Wow. So it was a really great thing for a long time for me, but I also felt like at a certain point I was ready to get rid of them. And, uh, kind of why I shut why I shaved the beard off too after a while was that I just really wanted to learn to look at myself uh, and learn to get used to seeing just me, you know, me That's plus fascinating. you know, me plus, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> you know, I've kept the beard off because I wanted to kind of force myself to just sort of like, go live with your face, go live with yourself. It's a, it's a good exercise for a dissociative person. Um, Interesting. Hmm. All right. Now, the next question, I think a lot of people are wondering, what is a butter miracle? Well, not going to tell you. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> um, it's, my, it's my thing. And I, uh, I haven't told anybody. I mean, I, I, I have a reason I named it that 
I love the surreal nature of it. Mm -hmm. I love, I love the, the imagery it, it conjures up, but I don't really want to tell everybody. I feel like it just limits it. Normally, yeah, I, fair, fair. normally I prefer to tell everybody everything about the songs, but, uh, in this one case, I've decided not to. Let's talk about recording in general for a second. And then I want to dive a little bit into the, to the new music. Um, the first time you and I spoke was back in December of 1993, August and everything after had been out in stores, but it hadn't gotten out there yet. Mr. Jones was not out at radio yet. So very few people knew about counting crows. And we were talking about that first album. It was, uh, I interviewed you and uh, Charlie at that time. And you told me, I've always been fascinated by this comment. You said that uh, when you were approaching the recording, you told everybody to sort of forget what they know about playing music, forget what they know already. You wanted to have everything totally fresh. And as you've, you know, we're 25, 27 years later, 28 years later, what's your process now for keeping things fresh, both in the writing and the recording process as you approach each new record? Um, well, I think you just follow like your vision and your, your curiosity, your interests, your whims, whatever gives you joy and passion when you're recording, just like, don't worry about making it sound like somebody else unless there's something you want to sound like. I mean, just my, it's kind of the same. It's just to do what you want in some ways and discover what's there inside each song. Um, you know, it's, you know, one of the big concerns at the very beginning for us was like, it's the first time we'd ever done it. And I had a lot of worries about people coming into the studio, uh, determined to make it a professional record, like the professionals do, you know, like mm -hmm. to, play correctly and not fuck up their parts, not make mistakes. And, you know, that, that sounded like a real recipe for something sterile to me. And I, I, and also I didn't think we knew who we were as a band yet. And I wanted us to be really open to discovering that, you know, that's obviously very different now. You know, I think we, we do know who, how we are, who we are as a band now. And we're not trying to sound like other people to be professional. Like what we are is, is fine, you know? And, um, but that can always change. You know, you just, there's no rules about it. You just want to get in there and discover stuff and make something that sounds cool and conveys all the emotions and grabs your ear and pulls you from start to finish. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of rules in there, except, you know, it just should feel great. You know, yeah, um, that's, that's a good rule. If that's the one, right. Just feel yeah. great. Well, that album, August and everything after turns out, 28 years later to still be my absolute number one favorite album of all time above all others if i could only listen to one album for the rest of my life i wouldn't even think twice about which one it would be so uh from this person's point of view that worked out cr really well one thing one last question about that album so to speak you had the title august and everything after but no song on the album with that name. And a couple of years later, you finally finished that song. And that was beautiful. What a glorious tune. What was the motivation to finally, at this point, all these years later, finally finish that? Well, about 10 or 15 years. I have to look on the wall over there. I can't remember what year it was. We got approached to do some shows uh, with orchestras, there were some companies that were putting together shows in different cities with bands with orchestras. And I said I would do it on one condition. 
which is that they got Vince Mendoza to work with us. I was familiar with Vince from his work with uh, Joni Mitchell uh, on the, the Travelogue record and on both sides now. And I thought he was pretty amazing, a real original guy as far as a composer, you know, and, and not afraid to take standards like Joni Mitchell songs and be creative with them. And, and so if we were going to do something like this, I wanted, I didn't want to just be counting crows with strings. You know, I wanted someone who was going to take it to another level and turn it into something really cool. So we did the show. I got to say, I don't remember what year this was. It, it was in the early 2000s uh, with Vince at uh, and then 72 piece orchestra at the Disney concert hall in, um, in Los Angeles. I uh, was there. And, yeah. So he was actually, I can't remember, you know, he came up with the idea of doing that song. I think I want to remember if it was him or me who suggested it, but he then composed this brilliant uh, uh, orchestration for it. That was so cool to me. My favorite things in that show were what he did for that song and what he did for Chelsea. Um, and uh, so, but we didn't record it that night because it was so prohibitively expensive. There was something like, 250 or $300,000 in fees, just union fees for the use of the hall and the, and the orchestra to do it that night. So we just kind of recorded it through the soundboard. Um, so we've kind of always wanted to do another show like that or something. And we were talking a few years ago, I guess it's about four years ago now, um, about, you know, Amazon sort of approach us with some ideas. We want to do something like an Amazon special single of some kind. And, I think I suggested doing something with an orchestra and I suggested doing August and everything after, uh, because I mean, the song was finished when we were recording the first record. It just had twofold problems. One, you couldn't edit very well with piano back then, you know, on a, on a two inch on regular analog tape, it was very hard to edit piano because of all the overtones. And it was very hard for me to play an eight to 10 minute song all the way through without fucking up. <laughs> um, on top of that, I wasn't a very good piano player, so the interest in it for 10 minutes wasn't very good. And three, I felt like there were some weaknesses in the songwriting on it. Like there was just some parts of it that were great, the parts of it that weren't great. Uh, it was just a little flabby that way. It hadn't been tightened up. And uh, so we did record it for that record a number of times, but I couldn't get a great version of it. And the day we were working on it, I was in the studio. I remember because River Phoenix and Samantha Mathis had come by and they were hanging out in the studio. It was just me, T-Bone, our engineer, Pat McCarthy, and River and Samantha. And after I'd played it a bunch of times and it wasn't very good, any of them, T-Bone's like, let's just take a break. I need, I need an ear break. And he left the studio or went out of the room in any case. And I was going to get up and then I said to uh, Pat, actually, just hang on, do me a favor and press record. I have this song I've written. I want to give it to Bonnie Raitt. Uh, she was really nice to me. I want to just, she didn't write a lot of her own songs. I wanted to give her a song and I, I had just written this song. So I played it and I recorded it. And when I looked up from finishing, T-Bone was standing there and he pushed the talk back button and said, what the fuck is that? And I said, oh, it's this song raining in Baltimore. Uh, I just wrote it. I'm, I'm just going to give it to Bonnie Raitt. And he's like, fuck that. Fuck August and everything after fuck Bonnie Raitt, uh, that's going on the record. And so we tossed August and everything after uh, and used uh, Rainy in Baltimore instead. And uh, so I didn't really think about it for years because I it's still I played it a couple times in concert, but it always had some flaws to me. And when Vince proposed doing it for that concert, I went back and and, re and worked on it and tried to write the flaws out of it. Just, you know, 
I fixed the parts that were really bothering me and, and made it a, a finished song. And then we did it for that performance. But like I said, we didn't keep it. Um, so when a few years ago, when we decided to do this thing with Amazon, uh, it was an obvious choice for what to do. And I, and at this point now I felt like it was finished. So, yeah. and I really, really loved that arrangement. It was just such a beautiful arrangement. Uh, not a whole orchestra, just a string section and oboe. So it was about 30 musicians or 20 something. Um, but it's, it, I also liked the way he did it for the band. It's pedal steel, drums and bass and vocal. So not a full band, but a, an interesting group of them. And we did it live at George Martin's old studio, Air, which is a, a repurposed church mm. in London. We were finishing up a tour over there a few years ago, and we recorded it after the tour. Just the four of us playing live with Vince and this orchestra. Uh, and it was really cool. Um, yeah, it came out really nice. Yeah, I love it. I really do. I'm really, really... I just think Vince is a genius. And I, it's just... The, all the work he did for that Disney Hall show was so good. I'm glad we finally got to release some of it. Well done. One song. Yeah, well done. Let's talk about the Butter Miracle, uh, what we have so far, Sweet One. And I'm curious about the theme that's running through it. There's a loose theme. And then... Also, um, you know, what the status is of Suite 2 and the entire uh, piece. So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, there really wasn't a Suite 2. I mean, it was never, it was just intended to be this one thing. Um, you know, I wrote it. I was in England for a while on my friend's farm. I'd spent a lot of time on this farm in the last few years. I actually just shaved my head, shaved the dreads off. Um and I ended up out on, on my friend's farm. My girlfriend was there with me sometimes, my friend and his family sometimes, but a lot of the time I was there by myself too. And at one point I just started wanting to write and I hadn't written in years. I hadn't wanted to, cause I think I didn't want to put out a record. And once I start writing, I want to record and then I want to release, you know, it's kind of a snowball that I can't stop. Um, and like a couple of days into playing piano, I started writing and I wrote the tall grass and I really liked it. Um, the next day I was playing it back for myself and I was just kind of messing around with the ending, trying to make sure it was actually done and that it wasn't a longer song, you know, maybe it wanted to be more like Palisades Park. Maybe there were other movements. Uh, and I was messing around with playing some different chords over the end and they sounded, that sounded really cool over the, I don't know why's. And then I sang this line, Bobby was a kid from around the town, you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. I, that I really liked. And I thought at first, well, maybe this does have other sections, you know, like Palisades Park. Maybe it's a longer song than I'm thinking. And I kept working on it. And after a little while, I, I realized, nah, this isn't the same. This is a different song. But it's really cool how they just came one out of the other. Like there was no break in there. It just flowed right out of the tall grass. And then I started thinking, well, what if I wrote a whole series of songs where the end of one is the beginning of the other? And you know, what if we make a suite like that? And I got really excited. And that's the first moment I've been really excited about, like, the whole idea of writing, recording, playing music in a, in a long time. Um, and so I just sat down and worked and worked and worked and wrote most of it over, like, it was August of 2019, I guess. Um, and then... Wait, was it 2019? The pandemic started in 
early 2020. That's what it was, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just like this. It's weird. This block of time that's disappeared from all our lives. Completely gone. You know, and I worked on it. I came back there again in October and worked on it some more. Uh, and I had a four song suite and I really loved it. Something was bothering me about the fourth song. Uh, it just kept sounding like something else to me, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I thought it was Elvis Costello, but I could not find something. And I asked all the guys, like, does this sound like something else to you? Am I, did I rip off Elvis Costello? And they were like, no, we love it. It's great. Um, send it to Brian Deck. And he's like, wow, this is really cool. I, we, I can't wait to do this. And I said, is anything bothering you about the fourth song? Does it sound like something else? Did I accidentally rip off, I don't know, Elvis Costello? And he said, oh, yeah, no, it's Miracle Man. Absolutely. <laughs> I said, oh, oh, my God, that's it. You're right. It, 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 it's not the whole song. It's just this one little section, this one little moment that is just completely. It's one little short thing that is the exact chords of Miracle Man and the tag on the end of it that is literally exactly the same, like a stylistic moment. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck, God damn it. He's like, well, it's not the whole song. I wouldn't worry too much about it. And I was like, no, nah, nah, I'm going to throw it out. So I came back there in January and I wrote Bobby and the Rat Kings um, that January 2020. And then February, we went in and rehearsed with me, Jim, Immer, Millard, and Charlie. So just drums, bass, one guitar, uh piano and vocals and we rehearsed for like a week and then we went in the studio right uh, like the last couple days of february and the plan was to spend two weeks in the studio and uh get most of it and then take a break everybody goes home and then two weeks later we bring in dan and dave bryson to get the other guitars on mm -hmm. uh, and we finish it up i wanted to try beginning with a less cluttered studio because we often play all together and three guitars can be kind of cacophonous. Um, and uh, I wanted to try and get just most of it together with just five of us playing live. Um, and so it worked great, but the last few days in the studio of the first two weeks, you know, we're looking on the news and there's the president, the CDC saying, I don't want people getting off the cruise boats because they're just going to infect us. And I'm, we're thinking this doesn't seem good, you know, and then we finished and two or three days later, quarantine, you know, uh, came down. So we didn't get back in to record with everybody. So eventually we realized it was going to be much longer than we thought. So they did stuff at home, each of them and sent it to us. And we got back together in July, Brian and our engineer, Neil drove in from Chicago. So they didn't have to fly. And we found a studio, a couple blocks from my house. Everybody stayed at my house and we just, I cooked for them. So no one had to go out and we just walked to the studio and we got the rest of the guitars in and mixed it. Um, so, you know, I, I'll still, I'll never forget the day we kind of clipped it all together because we didn't play it all to, in one, like 18 minute as we were recording, we were playing each song and then we would go, you know, up to like maybe the first verse of the next song so that we could, we knew they worked together. Uh, and, you know, then we'd stop. So when we clipped them all together was the first moment I really knew it worked. Cause it was, it was weird because usually you just know your songs work, you know, I'd, but this was an idea that I had in my head and only in my head. And it was written and composed to work and we recorded it to work, but you don't know that it works as a suite until you actually clip it together and listen to it.
And that's the first moment I really knew that a sweet thing was going to turn out. So I, you know, there was no other sweet because there was no way to plan that. Um, I actually just got back from England. I spent the last month over there and I, and I, that's one of the things I did was I sat down and I worked uh, on the farm again and I wrote, um, uh, another, you know, most of another suite, it's not finished and it needs to be, it's a little flabby. It needs to be tightened up. Uh, it, it, it some of it works, some of it's not completely there. Um, but yeah, we're going to do another one. Um, but yeah, Fantastic. that was planned for two. It was only planned as the one thing. You know? So it's an EP at the moment, and uh, at some point it'll all get finished and and become an album, as it were. If yeah, that, if so. that word album even makes sense <laughs> anymore these days, right? Yeah, I mean, it'll be an album in the sense that the two EPs will be put together. Uh, right. I actually really like doing this, though. I could see doing it for a while. It feels like an interesting uh, mode. You know, like when Miles decided to just do a bunch of records with Gil Evans in and around other things. I, I feel like I really like writing this kind of, it's difficult uh, and challenging, but it's very rewarding. And I also think it's a good, like, you know, it, it's obviously been, it's been obvious for a long time that you're better off just recording singles now, but it doesn't matter if it's not what you do well. Like what we do well is make these worlds for people to get lost in. We make records, you know, albums and Singles often pop up. I mean, shit. Elevator Boots went to number one this week. Triple uh, F. Oh, nice! Congratulations. Uh, yeah, it's nice. Thirty years into a career to have another record up, but you know, it's Triple A, so it's not like the same thing as a Beatles number one record. You know, it's not like the culture is coalescing around us right now. But it's still, it's our peers and it's our kind of music and it's the number one record. So that's all right. Uh, Elevator Boots, you know. So yeah. I don't really think a lot about the future at any given time. I think you kind of got to do what you're doing. Um, so I wasn't really thinking about a record. I was as much as I don't think we function on a singles basis. And I don't think the world functions on an album basis. Uh, it doesn't make sense to try to make your art to fit the public's demand. Uh, I don't really think that makes much sense. You should, go to your strengths, but the kind of sweet thing works to both in a weird way. Like it's very involving because it sucks you in. Cause you know, it, it, you can listen to it for 18 minutes. Um, but it's also kind of bite-sized. Um, and that's, yeah. you know, uh, it's, uh, I found it's like an interesting compromise and in that it, it really works that way, uh, in a way. And it's more interesting and more album like than just a regular EP. You know, the fact that it carries you all the way through, um, is very cool. Yeah. I have listened to the whole thing as a piece many, many times. And uh, first of all, Bobby and the Rat Kings is, to me, another easy single. That that just jumps right out, out at you. It's perfect for radio. But also, the whole thing fits and feels real good together. And I'm not going to make you answer this next question. I'll just say that I know that, that you're about to tour and I'm intending to see my 27th Counting Crows show when you come to Southern California in September. And I'm hoping that all four songs get played together as a suite, a full 18 minute, or in your guys's case, you'll probably stretch it out to 25. But, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing whether or not you you play it as a suite. I think, um, will. I think that'll be fantastic. I think I mean, that'll be brilliant. Plan. It's hard to Good. tell. Uh, until you do something uh, and that's uh, you know it's interesting this far out 
to still have a part of the experience that I haven't experienced yet. And the one thing I haven't experienced yet is playing it as a whole piece. Um, it's weird. Usually like by the time you finish recording, uh, you're going to have repeated experiences and you're going to learn more, but you're not having a whole fresh new experience, but this is going to be a fresh new experience. Um, like playing this as a piece, but that's my plan. I I've been trying to think of how to do it. I thought about like, will it work at the beginning of the set? Would it work in the encore? I don't think it's great for the beginning of the set, uh, unless it blows up and becomes like the biggest thing on the world, then maybe it could be at the beginning of the set, but otherwise I don't think so. It could work in the encore, but I really love Palisades Park there. So I don't think I want to do that. Um, but I thought about, it might be really cool coming out of an acoustic set. You know, we often break down to acoustic sets. Uh, and I thought like we could play one or two songs in an acoustic set and then play the tall grass and flow out of the acoustic set that way. Um, that could work. That, would, that could be a really cool build, like in the latter third of a concert to, you know, that takes you all the way up to the big, whatever the big songs you're playing at the end of the show, you know? Like, right. Um, but, you know, like I said, that's all just supposition in my head. That sounds like the best plan to me as far as all, I've done a lot of thinking about it, but who the fuck knows until you do it. I am very excited about that. It is really rare that there's this kind of, this much of an experience still left to be had, you know, still waiting to be experienced for me. And oh, like, yeah. what this song is gonna, you know, cause like everyone that's listened to it, their main experience is the listening, right? So they've heard the whole thing as a piece if they wanted to, you know, so they've, they've had that. But for me, it's both enjoying what I recorded and listening and listening to it and enjoying that, but it's also playing it. And I have not done that. You know, we, we've played each song into the next song, but we've never played the whole thing. And so there's this big, rewarding, juicy, challenging experience just sitting there waiting to be had, you know, when we start rehearsals and then the tour, which is about a week away, a week or two away now. Yeah, that's going to be fantastic. And I'm looking at the clock and realizing that our, our time is just about up. Have you got another thing lined up uh, right after this? Uh, no, nothing right after this right now. If you got some, some more questions you need, it's no problem. I, I have one more I'd love to to talk about from your point of view, and and uh, if 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 you got a couple more minutes. Yeah. Um, three years ago, you guys played down in Irvine as part of your 25th anniversary tour. Uh, Live was on the bill with you, and I can't remember the third band. Um, but uh, I was there, and uh, I had the. Um, I had the extreme privilege and thrill to get a chance to go out on stage before you guys and talk to the crowd and tell them a little bit about 88.5 FM. And it was still light outside enough to where, I mean, I'm standing on stage looking at 10,000 Counting Crows fans and I can see their faces. And it was such an amazing thrill to be able to do that for two minutes. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself what it's like from the perspective of, of all you guys, you know, getting to do that for an hour and a half or whatever, night after night, tour after tour. And I'm thinking that that feeling that you must feel back from the crowd as you're performing, as you're, as you're watching them sing your songs back to you. And then the applaud that comes at the end of each song, uh, talk for a moment, if you, if you would, about what that feels like, what it can't get old. I can't imagine that could ever get old. Oh no, that doesn't. I mean, I, 
I, I love playing to crowds. I mean, the bigger, the better. I, I, I've never been one of those guys who prefer to do the small club show for the intimate show. I mean, because to me, like, uh, especially with all the improv stuff we do and the, the amount of like times we will take you into breakdowns out of songs, like it's easy to do that in a club. But if you can do it for 60,000 people at a festival, if you can pull out the middle of round here and hear a pin drop at Pink Pop or Glastonbury, like that is cool. You know, I mean, that's really cool to me. Um, so I, I really like that. I mean, and I'm also sort of at the same time, probably less invested in the crowd than a lot of my peers, because I've also always felt like uh, it's a it's like a tr trick question in a way like you. Probably want to avoid getting too dependent on that, because like you got to go out there and play every night. You know, you got to play your best. You got to play a great show every night. Uh, you can't depend on what you're going to get from the audience. Some nights, like I said, it's the greatest thing in the world, you know, but other nights you may get a very bored front row, you know, or, or it's a casino. And so they it's literally, they're just walking in and out during the set or, you know, even the worst front row you could possibly imagine where they're not even paying attention and they don't give a shit. You can't let that affect your show because you can only see a few rows, you know, after the lights come down, after it gets dark, you can only see a few rows. So like there's 10,000 people behind them. Who could be having the time of their lives and you wouldn't be able to see it so like you kind of have to divorce yourself a bit from that too I, I get a thrill out of the crowd but i don't want to think too much about that because there's going to be a night where they're maybe they're just tired or it's just too fucking hot and then it's like are you gonna get bummed out and not play as well because you're not getting as much back from them you know and, and you can't do that so you kind of have, I, I kind of trying to keep myself at a bit of a distance too. I, I want to enjoy the crowd, but I also, you know, the actions on stage, you know, like where it's really going on is what's going on between all of us. What, what do I get when I look over, you know, especially at Immer, because I'm always looking over at Immer, you know, or, or Dan, you're singing with Dan, you know, like what, what am I getting from those guys? Because as much as I love the crowd and I, I love the crowd, but, you know, it's not their responsibility to entertain me. And I got to make sure I don't get disappointed by what I'm, you know, not getting the right stuff back from them, you know, and that's, our, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag for me. Like I, on the one hand, I absolutely love it. On the other hand, I, I know to at least emotionally keep my distance from that because, you know, it just doesn't matter what's going on out there. It does that's matter what's going on on stage, you know, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah, hearing you talk about your bandmates, uh, I always love the way you end the shows. This is my friend Dan. This is my friend Miller. This is my friend Charlie. Great way to end that. And on that note, I'm going to uh, let you go off and do what you're going to do next and uh, and the same thing. This has been a, a thrill, Adam. And again, I'm, I, I wish my camera was working. You'd see my face and go, oh, yeah, we've talked a bunch of times. And that would be uh, great, but we'll do it again another time i'm sure and uh, i'm loving this new uh this new uh, four four song suite it's fantastic i'm really happy. and uh glad to have a chance to chat with you about it thank you so much and uh good luck and i'll see you in uh, southern california in uh, about six weeks thanks jim and I, all right i knew the name thank you thank you well we did this for the album network several times and paste magazine and I, I interviewed you and emmy at a hotel in uh hollywood uh, three years ago right after the uh 
the 25th anniversary show and you remember you sh you were looking at a virtual reality concert uh oh, yeah. that, that that mark your manager gave you the 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 sort of the vr glasses or whatever you call it for and you you handed it to me and let me let me watch and i'm sitting there standing there watching you in virtual reality while i'm standing right next to you and that was bizarre <laughs> it was a weird thing i decided in the end i didn't really like that because as much as it was kind of cool uh you can't edit it you can't make it you can't cut it to make it dramatic you're just it you're leaving it up it to the viewer to edit and i decided i don't like that ah gotcha well listen thanks so much be well and uh i'll see you in a few weeks and and thanks again for your time this morning thanks man take care of yourself you, you bet thanks i'll talk to you soon bye bye jim bye